Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Well, hello, historians. A lovely sunny day here in lovely Leitrim. I have the great pleasure of speaking with Aaron Edwards. He is an author of seminal works on Northern Ireland, um, in particular 2021's Agents of Influence. And we've also got the UVF behind the mask. And he's here today to talk to us uh, also about his latest book. So I'll keep that one as a little surprise and I'll let him do all the introductions on that when, when we get there. On that note, uh, welcome, Aaron. Thanks so much for, for coming along. You're, you're busy at the moment. So so really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me along, Derek. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Let's start at the beginning, perhaps. A little bit about, you know, you, you've written obviously extensively about Northern Ireland. You are from uh, Belfast yourself. You studied at Queen's University uh, and you now live in London. Is that right? Is that right? Or are you you're living in Belfast now? Uh, no, I've been living in Hampshire. I'm really in the in the sticks, uh, as they say, 40 miles outside London to the west. So uh, close to Winchester. Uh, and surrounded um, by books. I love it. I have a little den out the back now. We moved to Leeds from um, three years ago, but into our new house just there in March. And it's just full of books. And uh, I love it. They've been in boxes for years. And it's so comforting just to, to have them around me again. It's like a, like a comfort blanket. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your, so you're growing up in, in the city of Belfast. What was your experience of it? Because obviously there were, there, was, there were changing times and were probably reasonably similar vintage. Uh, so uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about your, your, your boyhood. There's a tendency, I think, for people who come from Belfast, especially I, I was born in 1980, to, to sort of start the story in that sort of, you know, rags to riches kind of narrative yeah. where it was all awful and the troubles really were traumatic and, and, you know, this happened and that happened. But actually, I was thinking about it today that, to be honest, a lot of my childhood in the 80s was sort of formatively brought together uh, a couple of different influences. Obviously, the troubles were that kind of backdrop, but I think one of them was probably just stories and yarns that family members told me about things that had happened previously to the troubles. So a lot of people talked about things as if it was a golden age. You know, so I sort of grew up, you know, listening to stories about like the Blitz, Belfast Blitz, and about, you know, people working in um, various industries in, in um, East, the East Antrim area, about, you know, hard graft and hard work about my great grandfather who had worked on the Titanic and this sort of thing. So a lot of, you know, sort of my influences were around about that kind of narrative. The other one was popular uh, culture and and sort of movies and, and books and things that were to do with everywhere else but Northern Ireland. So I suppose my, my childhood, I, I wouldn't say it was entirely idyllic. I mean, I, I had a weird experience of growing up in a very urban area. And uh, and also being later on moving into uh, an urban rural type of setting, 
Uh, and that, and so the influences geographically, I suppose, were of the big smoke Belfast, but also of, you know, these uh, sort of undulating um, hills around Newton Abbey, Carnmoney, overlooking Belfast Lock. So a lot of my kind of memories are, are shaped by, as I say, those influences, the discourse, you know, how people talk to one another, that kind of working class language and and reference points, cultural reference points, but also things that were going on in the wider Cold War era. So a lot of the movies I remember from being a kid were movies, you know, Indiana Jones and 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 this sort of thing, and and the broader Cold War. So for me, I was more conscious probably of the Cold War era growing up than you know the the um, the blood and and snatter, as we'd say, on the streets outside the window kind of interesting you know looking back when you're talking about the cold war there that's obviously what piqued your interest but that comes through in in some of the books that you've you've written yeah so i i think i've got this kind of contradictory approach to history i like writing books about where i'm from but it was never intended to be that way i i never intended to write about northern ireland to me i, I wasn't interested as much as I was about the wider world. So I, I find myself always a, a person, you know, with those contradictions. I, I did an international history degree at Ulster University. Uh, and, you know, and that kind of fed from my interest in at school. We, you know, in, in the secondary school system in Northern Ireland, I was never a grammar school person or a private school person. So our curriculum was very much shaped around English history and Germany, you know, in the Second World War. I knew more about Stuart England and uh, Nazi Germany than I knew about Ireland and what had happened either north or south. And then when I went to university, that carried on. I sort of took modules in the English Revolution, Chinese Revolution, all this sort of stuff. I didn't really, um, you know, and, and, and obviously, you know, Hitler and the rise of Nazism, I didn't really uh, go back to Ireland until... Uh, I realised that that I was actually sat around when I came home from university around a table with people who were kind of part of the history of, you know, the Northern Ireland troubles, if you like. And that, um, as as I progressed through my university career, I wrote more and more about, you know, um, Northern Ireland. And, and then I sort of, I, you know, I was trying to resist the urge to do that. And then I kind of fell back in. So some of my books, as you, you've said, are about bigger things like war strategy, British um, colonization, decolonization that I'm very, very interested in, but also then this kind of insane hobby uh, of writing about uh, the Northern Ireland troubles and peace process. That's it. Well, you're, you're also, I mean, you're, you're, you're into the spy game when you're talking about, you know, your book Agents of, of Influence, you know, a, a riveting read. I mean, you're getting, you're getting right into all those facets that ha- helped shape the, the future, you know, helped shape the track of, of, of Northern Ireland right now. And things that, you know, I'm sure you growing up, I mean, I would have some relationship to Northern Ireland. I have a, a step-granddad who's from Portadown. I'm from Roman Catholic background. He was Protestant. We'd go up and visit, you know, regularly. So I'd, I'd, I would have had experiences in Northern Ireland, all right. But even from what I remember from the news and all that, like you, you didn't hear about 14th Intelligence Company and all the likes of all these different shady, you know, I suppose sub-police characters or whatever that were were really at the forefront of uh, shaping the, the outcome of the of the troubles yeah no i think i think you're right you know looking looking back i mean this is something that's always been fascinating to me that i come into contact just by very nature of 
you you know what I write about, what I research, you do find that you come into contact with people who have that kind of hidden history, that secret history. They don't really want to tell anyone, but then you engage them on a one-to-one basis and you find out more about them before you know it. You've woven them into, uh, you know, the, the rich tapestry of, as you say, you know, the shady, the dark um, recesses of the Northern Ireland Troubles. And, um, you know, I've, I've always had this knack of finding really interesting people. And um, recently I, I had this conversation with a few people about, you know, how do you know that what you're being told is truthful? Uh, and, uh, you know, how do you know that writing, I mean, the, the biggest problem with intelligence studies, I'm not an intelligence historian necessarily i've got an interest in intelligence got an interest in military history and so on but like i have with labor history or with whatever you know sort of brand of history you want to say pertinent to understanding history reading about history writing about history but uh what i found with intelligence history is that there's just so much stuff out there that's embellished i could talk to you a a little bit about some of the characters that i've met maybe maybe that would be of interest to your your listeners hundred percent. Uh, this is really interesting. Fantastic. Yeah. Go for I, it. I mean, yeah, I've, I've told this story. It's in, it's in the, uh, it's, it's in the agents of influence book where I found myself giving a talk about the conflict in Northern Ireland at a, a think tank in London. And I was sharing this panel with four very interesting people. They were talking to mainly an international sort of delegation and, you know, an audience that had come in from another country. As they'd all in their ways been, you know, history makers as such, you know, in, in various positions. But one of them that I sat next to had been a very senior um, British intelligence chief. And it was just something that he said. I never made a note throughout his, his talk. Uh, I thought that, you know, it was just best to watch him. Um, and I'd, I'd very, been very intrigued over many years because of popular culture and thinking that British intelligence officers were all like James Bond, but actually reality is they're not. And they're very ordinary looking, but this, this guy is something quite or, extraordinary about him. He sat, um, it was a very sunny day, I'd say, but he sat inside where there's virtually no sun. I was off, you know, shade, but he was sitting there with sunglasses and I thought that's very odd. But um, and he, anyway, he started telling this story about Ireland and about how British intelligence sort of went about dismantling the IRA. And um, of course, there's always an element of embellishment. But the one thing that struck me about it was that there was a strategy. It seems that there was some sort of strategy at play. And in the instance of influence, I build up a, a picture, very vivid picture of what that strategy looked like. So, uh, you know, it was a strategy of how you get people to essentially turn against their own their own community. And um, then I, I went off. Um, and I, I met three of these agents um, that the spy chief had been talking about. And, uh, and, and always when you have one opportunity to interview a person like that, you take the opportunity and you ask them everything you can possibly think. But my my approach to history is very, uh, I think I make a rod for my own back sometimes. I don't go in fully knowing then, you know, the, the, you know, I don't know the full picture, right? So I, I rely on people telling me uh, their perspective. And and uh, I met Willie Carlin, um, who was, uh, of course, member of Sinn Féin, um, had been sent back into uh, Derry, where he was from in the 1970s, to spy on on the Shinners. But, um, you know, we, he had access into the IRA through family connections. And when I met him, I uh, immediately uh, thought to myself that this person 
was just straight out of central casting uh, in the sense that he was a veteran. Um, he'd been in the British Army, but he'd also been a member of the Republican community. Uh, and um, But he, you know, shoes were, were polished. He had, uh, he was very well turned out, um, every inch, the, the old soldier. Uh, I think that what struck me about him was he was very personable. The first time I met him, he was engrossed in this conversation with tourists, uh, telling them all the wonderful things about London. And of course, he he was an emigre in many respects. But as I discussed with him, you know, some of the real trends of um, sort of Irish republicanism throughout the Troubles, such as electoralism and, you know, Sinn Féin becoming an, an electoral force. Um, it became, it, you know, it was quite evident that he had been in there and responsible for doing things like canvassing and uh, ensuring people like Mitchell McLaughlin got elected and Martin McGuinness, but that he also had this secret side to him and he wasn't prepared to give out all the information. He was very controlled in the dissemination of information. What I found with him was that he was very, very um, intriguing, but also ordinary. And uh, and so to me, there's a mistake about that. Consequently, I should say that I've met some of these guys who have claimed they have been involved in one secret army unit or another. Uh, and uh, as the great, uh, late great Spike Milligan once said, Adolf Hitler, my part in his rise and fall, when he talked about um, one of his barrack room comrades, I think his name was Buster, the character was Buster Roberts. He said he was a great bullshitter and uh, an embellisher. And uh, Buster Roberts was fighting Hitler, you know, one-handed. And always with these military intelligence guys, it's the same thing, you know, I my war with Jerry Adams or my war with Martin McGuinness, these great towering figures of Irish republicanism. And, you know, the reality is that they were only ever there for about six months. So, <laughs> you, 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 you know, so you have to kind of put that in context. But with the Willie Carlins, you know, who had been in there for a long, long time, mm-hmm. had been built up um, as a, a kind of human listening device um, and, and got himself into the rooms with some of the key people. You could see the whole strategy unfold, that um, he was one of a number of um, sources and, and agents and informants and it's highly controversial because of you know we are looking at the legacy of the conflict now much of the history that I write I you know I, I have to take into account present day considerations and political considerations uh, and that uh, I you know I do get criticized for my books coming out at just the right time when there's something politically controversial where they might say something or speak to that but that's never my intention I mean these things take years to to come to fruition um, I would like to say that I've got a crystal ball when I set out with the history project but it's never it never it never happens that way uh, and uh, but but you know characters like Willie Carlin are, are few and far between, and I've managed to find them in just about every history project I've been involved in, and that's what I really enjoy most about the the work that I do. It's, it's meeting people and finding out you, you know a little bit about them. It's hugely important, and with with Willie, like he had this incredible memory, you know, incredible capacity to recall and retain information, and then just to be able to stick it in a box inside the head, put it away, move on to the next thing and off he'd go and, and, and pass it around. Like, cause I mean, he, he, like you said, he was in the rooms. He was really trusted by senior Republicans thought Willie's the man, you know, uh, and then having to live your life 
as a family man and to show up for a job essentially every day uh, and then to have that absolutely secret side uh, you know that's that's the spy game stuff that we were obviously into as a kid you know that's uh, sure. it doesn't get me better than that I mean they're, 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 they're huge stories and what is very important about your work as well you know I know you mentioned timing for different reasons but we don't have much time to get these first-hand accounts. Do you know what I mean? The, 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 clock, the clock is ticking and they will be gone, you know, in, uh, in the recent yeah. future. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, I, and it's one of the things that, you know, I do uh, some supervision of um, PhD students and master's students and I'm always encouraging them to, to, to think about history in that way because uh, I learned that very early on. I did um, my first real piece of of history writing was uh looking at um the progressive unionist party of northern ireland when i was a an undergraduate student in final year and i'd come at it from the point of view of, of spending a lot of time reading very dusty old books about history and about modern political thought i specialized in modern political thought so i was more interested in ideas uh than people and and then i, I it was bizarre because the ideas do come from people so then i i managed to meet some of these people that i um obviously draw upon uh interviews in the uvf book such as billy mitchell who's a former chief of staff of the uvf and billy hutchison who's leader who is leader of the pup and don purvis who was leader of the pup and two two of them are still very much alive and very very vocal and you know s- still prepared to to talk about you know their roles but i think with billy mitchell who died in 2006 um i did several interviews with him and i worked very closely with him on a number of community based projects and he opened the door to uh, just a fascinating cast of characters right across the political spectrum and that's the thing that people don't really understand about about me i'm not close-minded i really want to meet people who made history in whatever community they came from and some of my best friends even today were in the ira and and just fascinating histories but this is this is the the important thing one day soon they might not be around and uh, and so it is vital that we try and interview them and just get them i encourage a lot of people to kind of write down uh, to prepare the private papers for the, unfortunately the the eventuality will come to us all um when when we die and you know i'm glad to say that some of those people have taken that on board i remember uh someone i became very good friends with kevin mcnamara who was an M- labor mp um uh, very vocal on irish issues very prominent during the troubles uh, kevin's no longer with us but he uh you know he was organizing his papers before he died but i encouraged him to write about his recollections especially when he was famously sacked by tony blair uh for being probably too pro pro sdlp more than Sinn Féin people sort of get that confused but i remember meeting him up in the houses of parliament and uh and then we adjourned our meeting after he he had read uh something that i'd written and he he uh in one of the committee rooms he was no longer an mp was about 20 years ago he he, t- he took me through line by line where i'd said something in relation to labor policy and 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 basically said that i had misunderstood or misrepresented so he it was a fascinating 
encounter because I recorded it and it, you know, it's there for posterity and in, in that a, a historian comes up against, you know, his arch enemy or her arch enemy, which is the people who live through history. And, uh, and always you get people sort of phoning you up and telling you that that's not the way it went down. Um, and I've always tried to strive to make sure that I record that accurately. But I remember a journey out to the houses of the parliament into the gardens where they do a lot of the um, interviews on TV. And we just talked about everyday things. And I, I got to know Kevin quite well. And then we we, we appeared at a, a couple of conferences and things. So I suppose I'm always very interested about that. I did my PhD on the Northern Ireland Labour Party that had been forgotten in the early 2000s. But a lot of those people who, who made up that party, um, I'd say... I don't know, 50% were dead, 50% were still alive and engaging with those people who were still alive and getting on record what it was that they did, I saw as like a, a mission, you know, because it was a history, it was disappearing. And here's the thing, it wasn't very popular. Nobody really, you know, everybody had a story about Labour in Northern Ireland and how it had all fallen apart because of the troubles. But no one really understood what that party had been motivated by they just saw it as a unionist party as appealing to one section of the community which wasn't true um there had been a lot of uh you know um things said about the nilp and and by, acad by academics oddly uh that was just plain wrong um so i so i said about just doing a lot of interviews with those people spending a lot of time with them and then writing that up and but basically it's a record for posterity it's uh you know it's of interest only to a small number of labor historians these days but i suppose in a way that's exactly the same approach i take today in the more commercial projects i, I do just saying there about the labor it shows you the knock-on effects of certain events obviously that essentially sideline them whereas they were actually you know, a cross-community party and then no, no more and that's the thing about history and particularly in like i am fascinated with northern ireland just the, the unintended consequences of, of certain things you know i'm sure the last thing margaret thatcher expected to happen was that Sinn Féin would take a you know a seat in Parliament, um you know when Frank McGuire died and allowed Bobby Sands to, to go and, and and take that place and the knock on effect to that, uh, and history is full of this and this is where all the wealth of learning is for for future generations if they choose to pay heed. But oftentimes you can see when you do go back through history that people don't seem to take heed, uh, and uh, history is a, a funny way of, of repeating some of the same mistakes. But you know Northern Ireland and the characters you say like the IRA, the UVF, they're not, they're not black and white characters. There was a lot of different things motivating these people to do the things that they did and they truly believed in, in what they were doing at the time. Uh, and it is very important to record all that. You know, it, it's a complex, colourful, deep history within Northern Ireland. It's evolving. Like, I mean, more, more than any other state, you could say, um, in Europe, certainly, it's evolving. You know what I mean? It's actually growing. Uh, and you do have two communities. And I know things aren't perfect in, in Northern Ireland uh, at all, but at least there is progress. And, you know, you're going to have the history of uh, the states going to look different in 50 years' time. You know, you might be talking, God, what the hell were the troubles? You know, wasn't it mad that they were going on? Uh, I hope that's the case anyhow. But this might be a good segue anyway into, um, drumroll please, your new book, Aaron. Uh, please introduce that to our uh, listeners. Sure. My new book, uh, People Under Siege, 
looks at the unionists in Northern Ireland from partition to Brexit and beyond. There's a lot in all that. Uh, and, and certainly, well, you know, obviously I haven't read the book yet. It will be one I'll be delving into. Maybe tell us a few of the, 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 the subjects that you, you cover in there. We might have a chat about some of those. Yeah, sure. The the idea came during the pandemic uh, when we were all locked in our, our spare rooms, taking a very, I think, a very insular look at the world. And, um, you know, the pandemic really, as far as I'm concerned, just accentuated a lot of the differences in Northern Ireland. The stereotyping was absolutely unreal. I mean, it's, it's bad enough um, at the best of times when people are circulating with one another. At least, you know, you could see what the other side looked like. You couldn't really do that through the medium of social media and the echo chambers that exist there. And I think that, uh, you know, it made me quite frustrated because, you know, the one thing that historians, uh, academic historians particularly, are frustrated by is the fact that no one reads uh, or no one learns, uh, you know, from what they read. And you get you get this uh, across across the board with academics that nobody reads what they write. And that's probably because quite a lot of it's impenetrable, really, and difficult to read. And one of the things I'm trying to do in my work is to make it accessible to people who, um, you, you know, who may not uh, have ever darkened the the, um, the ivory tower um, at university and, and some, you know, and, or any other kind of education environment in a long time or, or at all i suppose in a way i use that as a starting point and uh, and i'd been writing about ulster unionism for a long long time particularly around ulster loyalism um, but what i wanted to do was do something much more comprehensive to look at a hundred years of northern ireland um, from partition to the present day and it was becoming the debate around even when we were all locked in our own spare rooms around brexit was really becoming very polarized very polarized indeed and it wasn't just between the two communities in northern ireland it was actually between people in britain and ireland and uh, the stereotyping as i say was just extraordinary so what i wanted to do was like look at the unionists and and see if if they were these bowler hat wearing uh dar kind of uh caricatures that they've been made out to be for such a long time and the reality is they're not um you know i think that people mistake what they see as unionism uh and what they see as loyalism we're talking about two different things here uh and what i wanted to do in the book is just clarify the language and clarify the history so you know immediately if you're looking from the early 20s to the 70s that's the period of Stormont, the unionist regime which i refer to it as in, in the book where it's essentially a a unionist worldview built on a very narrow set of foundations uh, and uh, it's been characterized by the author uh, Michael Farrell as an orange state, uh, others as a unionist orange state um, but basically it was very exclusive uh, and it was based on a narrow interpretation of what unionism should be and there was discrimination which was rife and it wasn't just against the Catholic you know, community and minority as as we used to refer to it, of course, no longer. We're all minorities now, but essentially back then, that's the way it was looked at. The majority, you know, was discriminated against the minority. But within that, really, what I what I try to bring out is that the unionist regime was very, very worried, not necessarily about what Catholics might do, but what people within 
the unionist community might do if they had independent ideas. So you had independent unionists, some of them were sectarian bigots, others were very hostile and antagonistic towards the unionist regime and very vocal and, and uh, turning to the point of turning people against them in places like the Shankill, which is tra traditionally that kind of loyalist heartland uh, and, and other parts of Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland Labour Party. And again, often ridiculed as being a soft U unionist party, but the reality is that the Northern Ireland Labour Party in 1949 took a position on partition that it was that was here we, we had to do something you know more than just uh try to destroy it the reality was until such time that uh, the parliament in northern ireland voted for it to be otherwise we just have to play within the rules and that's what they committed themselves to but what they did was they held that unionist regime to account and so really what i tried to do is look at what unionism actually means uh in that period so very diverse. Um, yes, supremacist, some would say, uh, but deeply insecure. Uh, and so I came to the conclusion that there was an insecurity there. And then basically the next 50 years was explaining why it was that unionists went down one of two routes in, in trying to square the circle on their political insecurity and the connection with Great Britain, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That was either devolution or integrationism. So I look uh, at the, the different traditions and union, political traditions within unionism uh, up to the present day, uh, and they're adequately captured, although ironically, in different parties, the DUP and UUP, the UUP being the inheritor in many respects of the old party that was dominant for so long. So, so yes, it's a hundred year history. It's, um, you know, in 300 pages, it's an ambitious project, uh, but um, a necessary one to try and explain that unionists, uh, you know, there are variations of unionists, you know, and there are also these people called loyalists who take things rather more seriously uh, and uh, are, are in close proximity, some would say, to more militant forms of unionism. So, so in the book, you'll find there that explained, uh, and hopefully it will appeal to those who want, a, you know, a deeper understanding of of you know the, the unionist tradition on the island of ireland wow okay so i mean i i wouldn't have differentiated personally between the the loyalist and the unionist as as such i just would have seen them as under as you know as as one entity uh, so that in itself uh, is illuminating for me and, and how you know i may judge history or, or, or read, read history and it is really 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 complex you can get into I mean the thing about that type of history and, and from reading your other books I, I know you do this very very well is that you know you can make it sound exciting and you can draw certainly I mean you read the first few pages of Asians of Influence and you're just whoom you're in you know you're, you're bought on it for a lot of people you start mentioning the difference between loyalism and unionism it's, Whoa, okay all right I'm out I'm out because there's so many different factions and things and people and you're trying to oh my god what's going on you know who's who i can't remember did he say he was used did he say he was loyalist and what does this mean so you're right absolutely huge huge project but something that you know if people pick up on it and start talking about it uh, and i know you're doing rounds on, on various radio shows and things like that you know you've succeeded you've succeeded in doing what from talking to you here today it, it was your intention uh, all along and try and um shine a light on it for for everybody we were all in our various little bubbles I, you know, particularly during covid i was in my you know 
honeymoon phase of uh, having moved from Dublin City to uh, lovely Leitrim and uh, the idyllic countryside therein. And uh, really just, you know, everything was fine. And that's it. But like just listening to you there and going, oh God, there's something I missed. Uh, what was going on, did you say? What, they're getting more divisive because of COVID? What's happening here? I yeah. thought that people could <laughs> sectarianize uh, one of the most dangerous pandemics ever to touch down on planet earth but you know and uh you know but they did and and they made it a thing that that um you, you know became over the narcissism of small differences it became about restrictions and, and funerals you know for example at bobby story late ira chief's funeral that that was a kind of spark that led to this outbreak spontaneous outbreak of violence amongst young people in Derry and belfast and that that could be you know the debating point about whether Sinn Féin politicians should have attended this funeral when there were restrictions, <laughs> you know, and, and you're sort of sitting watching this thinking, how could it be the case that people are so divided after, you know, in the afterglow of the Good Friday Agreement uh, and, uh, and all these other positive changes that we've seen that, that people could become very inward looking. Uh, and, uh, and, and divided. But the reality is that I'm afraid to say that uh, all evidence points towards people being perpetually divided in themselves and, and between them and, and other people. Does that play out on an age band type of scenario? Because, like, you know, what you're seeing obviously is the young kids of Derry and whatnot, you know, everyone's getting out to touch a hooliganism obviously in that and just being young, poor and angry, you know, there's, there's a large part of that. Uh, and typically, you know, the, the, the terrorist wars um, during the troubles were fought by, you know, what we would call today, just kids. I mean, they were 18 to 22 year olds, largely. Typically, you know, I think we all, this is the question I suppose I'm getting to, I, I would think, you know, as we enter our 40s, <laughs> we all tend to become a little less militant and a little bit more chilled out about, you know, you just, you have a different view. Uh, and wars typically then are always fought by kids, but the orders come from the middle-aged people. Um, and I'm just wondering, is is that dynamic there in, in uh, Northern Ireland? Again, it's, you know, we're applying sort of general logic to something quite specific. I think that in Derry, for example, the dynamics are completely different, the conflict dynamics, the things that throw the young people in front of a police land over. There, there is definitely an element of history carrying them forward as well, ideology and a sense of belonging, no doubt. I mean, I've been up to, to Derry quite a lot recently and kind of I'm looking into the conflict there because I'm interested, always have been fascinated with Derry since since I lived there for a year, uh, some years ago, and uh, having friends in the city. So I think that today we're, we're seeing that kind of sealed knot mentality, the sort of cosplay being played out, you know, the idea that you can be a militant Republican if you throw a petrol bomb or a stone at a police Land Rover. Um, you're sort of acting through a ritual, uh, in, a, in a way, rites of passage almost. Um, if you look at some of the clashes between young loyalists and parts of Belfast and the police, again, you know, some of the dynamics are similar, but, uh, you know, the overlay of the political sort of identity um, or uh, sectarianism is played out differently because of the demographics because of geography so yes there is de definitely that element of generational uh, influence in both because you find that what, what people I, I suppose don't really understand necessarily until something flares up is that these organizations whether it's the IRA 
and its various guises or, or loyalist paramilitaries have always been recruiting. So they do have people in them who are uh, teenagers who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And actually, you know, the UVF, for example, is rumoured to have a leadership in its 70s, you know, who've been in the game for a long, long time. But of course, they would be very much bought into the peace process, even if they kind of are sceptical about the Good Friday Agreement and what it, what it has brought about for, for unionists and loyalists today. But nevertheless, there is that older generation who are, um, you know, I think generally uh, knowledgeable of the, having lived through the troubles and not wanting to repeat it. Um, but then there are other, there are other malign groups and individuals who who do want to repeat it who want a second go and then there are younger people who never had a a go uh, and sort of they they feel that they must uh, reenact this you know gangs because that's what they are really deep down they're gangs but played in a more muscular paramilitary way in in our in ordinary society so um i you know i i do despair i think for you know seeing that dynamic repeating itself that younger people are still going into prison um, but there's no you, you know there's no ideology necessarily carrying them forward it's it's really just this kind of innate um, feeling of belonging um, that they desire uh, and um, and that's that's the way that the sort of drama is playing it's playing itself out and um, but the context has completely radically changed uh, and there is a peace process ongoing is but the, the under siege in the title does essentially refer to those and and justifiably i mean i would just sit here and have a neutral stance on it if you know if i if i was a unionist and you know there's a catholic majority coming that is going to get bigger as time goes by uh Sinn Féin are on the rise and all the talk down south is bringing about a united ireland but you know okay my opinion i lay on the table I don't believe it's time for a united Ireland. That's my own personal view on it. I think there's way more work to be done where everybody can feel completely included in the society and not have to have those old fears about what what might happen. Now, I wouldn't imagine anything bad would in the sense of people would be you know discriminated against or you know there'd be there'd be no gerrymandering politics around that any that kind of stuff. But you could certainly see why people think that way and especially if you're coming from a community that does feel enclosed uh, within their own their own city yeah and i suppose it's a it's a warning really from history in that sense that you know for me i travel a lot and i i you know find myself in deeply divided places and and you talk to people uh, and you share something in common having come from a very broken place you know that uh, and the one thing that I learned from other people is not to take anything like peace for granted, because if you do, you forget that, um, you know, war is literally just around a corner. So the conflict itself may be somewhat uh, subterranean, shall we say, um, but it can pop up and uh, you can find these sinkholes occasionally popping up and uh, sucks everything down in. Uh, and that's all good positivity. And I've seen that personally. Uh, one of the the reasons why I left Northern Ireland to, to go to England back in 2008 was because I made a calculated decision about, you know, my future, but also because it was, it felt in the projects that I were I was involved in, community-based projects, community relations projects with former paramilitaries and so on, that, that we were moving somewhere in a positive direction because 
as you remember, 2007, Ian Paisley sat down with Jerry Adams and then, of course, he became First Minister of Martin McGuinness's deputy. Uh, and uh, that I, I could feel, now there were still challenges, there were still things like this and Republican shootings and, and bomb attacks and so on, things that were going on, or hoaxes at least. But there was a view that there was a more united front and anything was possible. And I left Northern Ireland in 2008 with that kind of wind behind me that I'd invested from the early 2000s until then in trying to build that peace and maintain it with a with a bunch of you know amazing people coming from different communities but all who believe that the best way forward was to cement that peace process um you know and people who had been in the provisional ira uvf you know and so on and then over the years i've watched in horror as the place has just fallen into disrepair and the peace process that I invested so heavily in, in my own small way, but that was writing, that was talking, that was that was actually doing practical things in the community to to build upon the Good Friday Agreement. In the spirit of that, being just whittled away, and then the two sides effectively radicalizing their own bases, and then the wheels started to come off. Uh, and uh, sadly, we are in a political vacuum at the moment. And political vacuums in Northern Ireland are not good because what comes of it are malign actors and influences that will bring the place back to the brink again. Uh, and, uh, and you know, I haven't seen the united political leadership necessary to, to move Northern Ireland forward. And, and that's a really serious set of circumstances. And I see that when I talk to people overseas, they tell me things. I mean, if a friend of mine who had been in the uh, uh, Greek Cypriot um, militant group Ioka way, way back in the 50s. They fought an insurgency against the British in, in Cyprus. Um, he had been a kid um, and been uh, tortured by the by the British um, back in the 50s. And uh, anyway, he became a very successful businessman. And I remember something happened in Northern Ireland. It must have been about 2000 and maybe 14, 15 Um I think it was around the Stormont House Agreement. So later on, yeah, it would have been 2014. Uh, and when I met him in Limassol, the first thing he said to me is, what is going on in your part of the world? You know, and then I, I, and then I said, well, I could ask you the same thing because Cyprus is still divided, right? And I see two... I see the two in comparison. I've written about this, and I'm fascinated. The two of them have um, very ancient island stories, but they are the people are divided on both, and that's interesting because you you know people from from outside can give us a, a very different perspective on our own history, and that's what I try to write about when I'm writing about Northern Ireland. I'm trying to write it not necessarily for everyone who knows the narcissism of small differences and can tell you that Edward's got a street name wrong or that this pub changed its name to that, you know, in 1971 and a half. You know, I'm not really interested in that. I'm more interested in the deep and meaningful kind of forces of history that, that keep perpetuating those those narratives and stories and uh, and um, you know and, and how we can tell the uh, story of, of people better uh, so that's what I'm more interested in looking from the outside in necessarily uh, more more so than than um, the inside out that's the, the type of history that interests me as well um, so for me it would have slightly different views or interests on, on, on how we take history the 
Oh, say so paramilitarism, you've mentioned a couple of times now, just like so that is now starting. So you, you, you see there is recruiting going on right now. There got to be a small base, though, is it? Or is it something that you would say, well, listen, this could easily get out of hand very quickly? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, right. you, you know, I do, I do know probably an awful lot more than... I, anybody really should about loyalist paramilitary groups yeah. and a friend of mine who'd been in the provisional IRA ex-prisoner he once said to me a few years ago that I was the man who knew too much and whether or not that was usable I think he was getting that <laughs> you know it's all right knowing a lot but you know if you know a lot about something very small then you, you might not know something about other things that are happening around I think the loyalist paramilitary groups they course they change over time they grow in size they shrink um what we're seeing at least a recent estimate by a leaked report given to the bbc a few years ago said that loyalist paramilitary groups have over something like twelve thousand members you know what are they doing is it a uh you know an old comrades association are they intimidating people are they running around housing estates because that's where they're normally to be found, depraved, working-class neighbourhoods where young people are impressionable, more impressionable perhaps because they don't have the life opportunities that other people have. Uh, Whatever the reason that they would become involved in paramilitary groups, they still are. There's a spell that they're under, uh, an allure that these groups have a mystique. And um, we are seeing a remilitarization of uh, cable ends and wall murals, you know, wall murals in some of these areas. Now, does that reflect the kind of drilling army, um, you know, with, um, you know, modern weapon systems being, you know, landed on beaches? I don't think so. But one day you just never know. And I think talking to some of those who have been wedded to loyalist paramilitary activity and militarism for a long time, they would say that it's that never knowing bit, the bit that you have to always, you know, prepare for. As the famous or infamous um, UVF mural that's used in almost every uh, newspaper story about the, about um, Belfast, we put it prepared for peace, ready for war. And, uh, you, you know, They've been preparing for peace since the early 1990s. You'd think that they would, you know, be ready for peace. <laughs> uh, but so, so it, yeah, as I say, it's difficult to know where the action is at at the moment. But we know that there were sparks in 2021 around sort of Northern Ireland, around Brexit, Northern Ireland Protocol. And that, those rallies have breathed new life into these old paramilitary dogs. But I don't think that they're necessarily going to be storming the Bastille, um, whether that's storming or anywhere else anytime soon. I think that they're basically controlling their own communities. And I think there's an irresponsibility there about allowing them to do that. And I've been writing and talking, and it's probably why I don't get so much airtime. So I'm glad that you're giving me the, the, the opportunity to say this, but it should not be that it should not be like that. I was in there in rooms with people who had run paramilitary campaigns uh, throughout the Troubles, and they didn't want it coming back. And they spent the rest of their lives, people like David Irvine, Billy Mitchell, and so on, that I've written about in my books, saying, do not 
let history repeat itself, or even rhyme for that matter. And they die, and that narrative sort of disappears. And then you get these people coming out, bringing feet onto the street, and it's only ever going to end one way. And that is in a very violent way, perhaps in Northern Ireland, there's a potential there because, uh, you know, you know, in Northern Ireland, there there is a a um, uh, too much of fixation with what force can bring, and you know, I have to say because of the work I do on on places around the world, uh, in Sudan, for example, or the Middle East, you know, Middle East proper, not just North Africa, um, or other parts of Europe, that force is not as decisive as it's made out to be. And I think from with my military historian hat on, you know, because I write about strategy, killing people doesn't get you what you want. We see that with what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. It just perpetuates a victim mentality, for example, which is what a lot of these people who are rallying rallying Ulster loyalists on the streets, you know, talking about betrayal, using big bombastic language, that is not sensible because you just don't know who will take that seriously and what they might do with it. And there's always a danger. And if any of my writing or, or books have an influence on people, I hope it's to tell them that there are other ways to pursue your objectives um, beyond violence. So, you know, in a way, I, I do think of what I do in a political sense. Um, it's about de-radicalizing, if you like, uh, mindsets. And um, I think that that's a responsibility that historians, you know, need to bring to the party. I mean, I don't put that necessarily into shaping the crafting of my, you know, history writing, but it definitely, um, it's it's an after effect, I think, for people who, I'll give you an example, I'll give you a very, very clear example. I went to my book launch in 2017. I was accosted outside the bookshop by a former UVF prisoner who had uh, been involved in a lot of activity in the 70s as a kid, as a, as a late teenager. And he said to me, and he had been convicted for bomb, uh, for bomb explosion and sent to prison. And he said to me, without a hint of irony, Derek, he said, now I understand why the Manchester Arena bomber did what he did. And I thought to myself, uh, it's just lost on, on him, sadly. What I'm trying to do is to get people to think about the consequences of their own actions, what motivated them and how they can then deter other people. Um, it's a warning from history. We we should always have said, and I've maintained this, and I, you know, I, I, there are people who obviously agree with me, because I think it's a very sober way to put it. We should have this approach to history writing about the troubles in Northern Ireland, wherever it might be, with the same two words, never again. And uh, and and unfortunately, we don't have that. You know, that that is definitely there if you read histories of um, formation of Israel, for example, but it's done for very political, different political reasons. So I think that we must be responsible. So therefore, yes, I come from a very moral perspective on 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 this. And that's because I've seen the horror of violence played out on the streets and the trauma and the and the trauma transfer and the, the psychological damage, never mind the physical damage, the psychological damage that 
that these ethnic conflicts do to people. It's, you know, it's definitely not a positive way for us to live our lives by rerunning an old um, tribal spat. And so you can see there a little bit about why why I continue to write it in the way that I do about Northern Ireland. And you mentioned vivid, you know, vivid sort of ways of uh, writing. The best piece of advice I ever got was from the late writer, uh, Sam McGaughtry, um, who had been a member of the Northern Ireland Labour Party. And when I interviewed him way back 20 years ago, um, he said to me, so you're doing a PhD thesis on the Northern Ireland Labour Party. I wish you all the best. And as he was leaving me, off um you know so i was walking walking off he said don't forget to put color in it <laughs> and uh i think a lot of my favorite history books have color in them yeah. <laughs> and bring the story to life and i think the really good military historians do it very very well and yeah. i know you've had some some blockbuster historians on your show and, yeah. uh, and they write so well and vividly that it captures our imaginations. So I think that that's what I wanted to sneak in there about the way that I approach. You're, you're dead, right? And I'm, I'm glad you do because, you know, we've mentioned it numerous times on the show. This is what history is about. Uh, and it's all about, you know, con- converting people. Um, and I'll say this probably for the last time, but I actually have converted my wife. It's incredible to see. It took her a few shows and she's complained about all the history books I had. You know, they were in boxes for years. Like literally just in boxes and I have them all out now. It's great. Um, but like she's reading stuff now, you know, she's uh, she listens to every episode. And she's like, well, what happened there? And I, you know, and that's listen. This is it. Let's keep, let's keep it alive, but put it to good use, which is what you're doing. And it's it's really Trojan work all, all together. I would like to say just before we finish up, though, as well as you know, for any potential tourists to Northern Ireland, it's not evident when you're literally walking around. Like I've been in Belfast a couple of times this year. Um, you know, one was on my own. I just went for a wander. You know, and I know I was going in and out of Republican and and loyalist areas. You know, I didn't feel unsafe. You know, I might be ill-advised. You're telling me different, but I didn't feel unsafe. And the welcome that you get in, in places like Belfast and Derry, I just, you know, you, you don't you don't get it in some other parts of Ireland. You know, the people are people are really friendly, really welcoming. Um, and uh, I definitely f- I feel that every time I go up there. So I would I would just like to say that it's a great city. Love it. You know, really, really do. Aaron Edwards, thank you so much for for joining us on the on the historians. My really pleasure. Excited. Very glad I got to do it. Just as you're launching your book as well. Um, and I'll pick up a copy soon and, and, and give, give it a read. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Derek. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation and we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here